0: I want to welcome everyone here this afternoon. And this is, uh subject for today is uh, emptiness. Or it's a, it's a special, uh, special um, interest to, people at this time, because of the time of abundance, then um, we get, uh, we begin to realize the futility and the meaninglessness of so many things. Uh, I think if you could stop your camera for a while, (laughs) you're all right. It gets unnerving to have a lot of cameras focused on you. I think I'm a Korean War veteran, so I get nervous when they have uh, things aimed at me all the time. In, uh, I think that the kind of the the hallmark really of Buddhism is the fact that it does uh, emphasize uh, it, the most significant words are like let's say the most famous significant word is nibbana or nirvana, which uh, gets translated into pop uh, uh, jargon by being kind of maybe. Wonderful or heavenly. Somebody gave me showed me some wool the other day, named Nirvana, and it's used, you know, for I, I, in Perth, Australia. There's a woman's uh, uh, hair salon named Nirvana. And I'm sure this doesn't mean emptiness, or or maybe it's a place for shaving women's heads. I don't know. <laughs> but I. I assume that it really meant to imply the kind of, uh, you know, the best, uh, the most beautiful. And so heaven and hell are the kind of polarization of uh, conditionality where uh, heaven uh, symbolizes the very best that you can possibly think of on the conditioned plane. And, and hell is the absolute worst of uh, what you can imagine in terms of pain, misery, uh, disgusting conditions, horrible conditions, and nibbana is is uh, is tr- means that tr- the the letting go or the non attachment to the extreme. So it's not a state of uh, of of refined bliss uh, and. Uh, uh, and, and uh, extreme happiness. Uh, but it is, it is, it's a different, it's a different uh, kind of experience where you realize letting go and non-attachment. <clears throat> where Before we realize that, then our experience of life is just through attachment. We're just attached and we experience life through our ideas, our views, our, uh, the sense of our self, our cultural attitudes and uh, social conditioning, our fears and desires. So, say the average person that has not realized nirvana then experiences life through through the conditions that they that they um, acquire, that they attach to, and then the realization of nibbana is is the realization of non-attachment to the conditions. It's it's a subtle realization. Uh, And a realization isn't uh, isn't a created thing. You don't create conditions uh, refined and and subtle and uh, beautiful conditions for Nibbana. It's not that. It's not not dependent on the, the, the conditions of the present moment. But the re- the response to the conditions of the moment. <clears throat> so, in in say a person with with horrible pain, uh, terrible diseases, in the midst of uh, the battlefield, and <laughs> say all the conditions are absolutely rotten, but they could still realize nibbana. <laughs> Then the then the uh, in Theravada the they, uh, they, they, they emphasize anatta or no self, which is isn't a, this is also a term that oftentimes gets uh, overused and, uh, and and becomes uh, a kind of atheistic belief uh, that Theravadin Buddh- Buddhists can uh, can grasp. I've heard people say, "Do you believe we believe in anatta or no self?" Which is is not what the Buddha meant. It's not a it's not a position one takes, but it's a it also is a realization through meditation. You're actually looking and observing how things are, and and through that investigation of what you usually regard as yourself, you realize it's not yourself. You know, because our cell, our personalities, and our ego is very much conditioned by identification with your body, with, with the gender, with your male or female, with what you look like, the color of your hair, color of your eyes, uh, the shape of your nose, the complexion you have, <laughs> and so we, you know, we we, we identify with the what with the with our bodies, with our face especially and then uh, we we say this is this i am a man i am a white man i'm an old man or a young man or whatever but but these when we look into these perceptions of self we realize there they're just conditions of the mind that this body is is a condition of in nature it's not it's not like my personal possession this physical body operates according to the laws of nature. It doesn't operate according to my, to the way I want it to. Unless what I want is in in, in line with nature's ways. <clears throat> so, you can see that modern life is an attempt to try to, to, to uh, control the body, make it, because we're so strongly identified with it, make it do what we want, make it look what we think it should look like and and uh, be happy or miserable according to uh, what it looks like and the praise or the uh, blame that it receives. Interesting, that just uh, to observe the, the force of will what Olympic uh, athletes can make their bodies do, isn't it? Incredible. Well, just an act of will, uh, you, can, you can make your body do, say, Incredible things in terms of human experience. I even hear uh, heard like uh, like uh, singers or opera singers who can 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 visualize in their mind high notes and and will themselves to reach incredibly high pitches that are that are beyond their ordinary range, just through an act of will, and so. The, the human mind, we have, uh, we have a, we are, we're have very willful creatures and we can imagine uh, extremes that are beyond, say, the limits of our own physical abilities and, and we can make ourselves do those sometimes. But then, in the long run, it's not sustainable, is it? We can't, you can't sustain that kind of extremity that's very brief uh, and then, then oftentimes uh, you can't ever do it again. So, in terms of anatta or no self, then we we see that these are just using our willpower and trying to control and dominate our our life's experiences uh, is uh, is a based on our attachment to desire and fear, and that we uh, we we create our endless suffering around all these these things that we're attached to, which is which is uh, what our personality is comes from, and that we consider ourselves whether we're we're as good as somebody else, we're superior or inferior or the same. I mean, endless projections and anxieties we have about ourselves as a as a physical being. Then our emotions and. And uh, views and opinions, the way we attach to these create a sense of a person. I am a unique personality. But on investigation, it, do, it doesn't hold up when you really... And, uh, and this you, you must do yourself, you must find out. Not asking you to believe, believe in, in anatta. <laughs> but it is a, it is a, a word that encourages us to to look at all the things we assume we are the the views the opinions uh, the way it is uh, the conditioning of your mind your own body uh, as it is and and see w- whether you can find anything that you can honestly regard as an eternal ongoing unmitigated self uh, that that uh, lasts through through uh, lifetimes or eternity, then uh, Shunyata or emptiness. Uh, this also in Theravada is mentioned a lot, but in yeah, Mahayana, has the um, Madhyamika teachings and so forth, in the in, and and the in and Zen, of course, uh, Zen various forms of Zen Buddhism emphasize. Emptiness. Then there's nothingness, and then there's uh, uh, desirelessness and cessation. So these words are very significant in uh, in Buddhism, and they're negations of things, aren't they? They're like anatta, negation of self. Nibbana means not, you know, actually. It means the, the realization of non-attachment. It doesn't. It doesn't tell you what it really is. It's not a description of something, but it's a, a denying of, of of a common habit that we have, which is attachment. Sunyata doesn't say whether emptiness is is good or bad or anything. It's just empty. It's like space like nothing. And so when we try to conceive, uh, try to, to, to just attach to these ideas of no self, emptiness, nibbana, niroda, desirelessness, we end up through, through just holding on to the views that we form around these words, what happens is we become annihilationists. So you, you meet uh, Buddhists who believe there's no God, no self, uh, there's no meaning, uh, there's no soul. <laughs> and they come, their, their view is one of a very, uh, you know, it's based on the intellect, on grasping the ideas of Anatta and Nirodha and Nibbana and Shunyata. So the logic when you when you logically deduct from that then it, it's a, it's annihilationism or nihilism. you end up as a uh, you know you're saying it's meaningless there's nothing it's just totally empty uh, and that's then that ends up as a position you take and grasp that position, which is what the buddha was was trying to point to as the cause of suffering, whether you believe. Uh, we have a soul. Believe in God. Believe in eternal heaven, uh, and and believe in. I mean, if you're going to believe in things, it's better to believe in the positive side. <laughs> it makes you happy, at least. So, so the the belief in in in, in a loving God that and and, and uh, heaven, eternal heaven, things. These are these are very inspiring and beautiful beliefs. And then the the other, no God, no self, tends to come across as a as a really, you know, sour grapes approach to life. I and mean, and you know, a real put down of everything. So those are the two extremes. The Buddha that the the the, the uh, he's pointing to the middle way between what what he called Gama Sukali Kano Yok, which is the the eternalist view, and atakilamatanu yoka, which is the annihilationist view. And so it's just very important to recognize these two extreme views in terms of, of our thoughts, uh, opinions that we have, assumptions that we make about ourselves and the universe uh, that we live in, that we're experiencing now. And so the, the emptiness, realization of emptiness or anatta is done not through trying to grasp the idea but through the actual realization of it. The reality, the, the direct knowing of the simple experience of non attachment In the Buddhist monastic form, for example, the the uh, bhikkhu, bhikkhuni, uh, it's a f- it's a form that that tends to encourage this realization. The, the the attempt to like shave the head and and the eyebrows, the beard, the mustache—all the kind of highly uh, the, the the signs that convey uh, you are a a man or a, a woman uh, on the level of, of what your face and your appearance uh, are removed you notice the they shave their head and eyebrows their beards and mustaches <laughs> and so, so do we <laughs> and then we, we uh, so we all uh, you know you can still tell male and female but, it, they, they, but there's no emphasis on that not not to promote that sense of identification with gender or the the robe the kind of shapeless the robe that covers the body does not does not conform to the lines uh, in, in a way that 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 exaggerate the female or male form things like this the the color itself is a is a is an unattractive color isn't it? It's it's not uh, it's not not this color they don't use in in fashion hardly ever, and when they do, it doesn't last very long. <laughs> people don't like this color very much, so it's it's a kind of mucky color, and so that it, in and it it doesn't doesn't arouse a kind of like inter- sexual interest in. Convey a, a sense of look at me and make how attractive I am. So that this, this is these are just ways, uh, conventional ways, say of of contemplating, of reflecting our own uh, sense of ourselves as a male, as a female, as being attractive or unattractive or whatever. It isn't. It isn't a denial <coughs> or a rejection of femininity or masculinity, but it it's a it's a it's a mirror for that because those are very strong identities then the then the, the discipline and the whole structure is based on on uh, reflecting observing your own kind of egotistical obsessions with yourself and the selfish attitudes because you're living in community your, your selfishness is reflected a lot in communal life. Like in, in a community, you have, everybody has to kind of work together. They have to help each other. And, and, and a really selfish person stands out like a sore thumb in a, in a monastic community. Well, they might go very really unnoticed if they, you know, and they're living in their own flat in London. And, uh, and then they might, nobody might know that they're selfish at all. And they might not even know. You really find out when you join a monastic community how selfish you are. Mm. So the sense of self is, is, is brought up into consciousness. Right? And there, there, now we are conscious beings. So this is this is consciousness is, is a function. It's not a. We we don't identify on the ego. From the ego, the personality, with consciousness, the con- the uh, the the personality is around our feelings and our opinions, isn't it? You create yourself out of views and opinions and your feelings. What you like, what you don't like, your your view about yourself and the world, and and uh, the the the, the uh, cultural attitudes and the the fashions of the day and all this uh, uh, can give us a sense of our self-worth as a person it's interesting uh, uh, I've said this several times before but just to to, uh, to, to use an example of a highly uh, of a, a mere reflection for a sense of self was uh, they, myself being American Uh Conditioned in a way that, that where the self is very, uh, is very strong. Your identities are very much with being an individual. You in, say my my generation, and and uh, social background in the states was one based on, be asserting yourself as an individual. Uh, your your value was. Was your individuality, not your class, not your race, not your um, uh, anything other than, than the sense of your self importance as an individual compared to others. It's a very competitive system. So you, you have a, even though it's an egalitarian, idealistic society, it's also very competitive. So you're, you, you, even though you say, on one level, you're saying we're all equal, we're all the same. There's no class. Everybody's equal here. Men, women, all races, and on the ideal level, that's proclaimed as the the way it should be. But in the realities of life, we're always trying to prove we're better than somebody else. And though you're feeling inferior, if you're not better, then you tend to see it's hard to sustain an ongoing view of yourself as equal when it gets highly personal isn't it it, it becomes uh, you're better than I am or I'm not as good as you are I'm better than you are you're you're much more stupid than I am or I'm much more stupid than you are <laughs> and so the, this um, this sense of individuality uh, is, is what was my cultural conditioning highly developed sense of a unique uh, self-importance, and uh, because of that, there was a, a, a lack of ease in life. Because uh, this was such a basic underlying assumption, it wasn't like given to me in a in a in a direct way. It was assumed through uh, through parents, through the whole social system, educational system that you that influences you from the day you're born. So you're it's not like you're, you're given this and saying this as a truth, but it, it's an attitude that, that affects you and that you pick up without your even knowing it. And then I began to see in my life as a monk a sense of, even in monasticism, in a Thai monastery, for example, this, this sense of always comparing myself with the other monks. I'm better than they are, they're better than I am. It's insidious. When, uh, we, we had to learn uh, to chant this padimokha discipline, which is 227 rules uh, in Pali. And you had to, uh, before the fifth year as a monk, you were supposed to memorize this whole thing, be able to recite it without looking at, at the text. And so I found myself wanting to recite the Moka, you know, like, faster and better than the time monks even though um, idealistically i could i could i could see that this was wrong and this was stupid yet yet this was such an ingrained uh, way of relating to life you know of of uh, whatever you're doing you have to you 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 feel this it, un, it's underlying even unconscious motivation to be the best to try to do it better than somebody else and so I began to see this because uh, Ajahn Chah was very good at, at making us look at these conceited attitudes. And these, uh, they oftentimes these, these assumptions we were making that we, that we, uh, we weren't even aware of. Especially if we we're operating pretty much on our own terms. When you're living in, in monastic community then it, you begin to, it mirrors the sense of your self-importance, your conceit, your cultural assumptions. I noticed that uh, I liked living in Asia better than I did in America. Why is that? Why did I prefer Asia? I mean, in America, we had everything. You know, freedom, equality. (laughs) Uh, And we, uh, uh, you know, comfortable living conditions and uh, efficiency and all the rest. And yet... Uh, one felt somehow more at ease more at home e- in, a, in an Asian country I lived in for uh, example in uh, Malaysia for several years and in Thailand for many years and in India I can say all these countries I felt there was something in me that felt at ease even though I was an obvious foreigner in these countries You know, physically I was a giant Compared to the Thai, Thai monks, you know, there's pictures of me, uh, you know, with Thai monks, and here are is huge white man and these little brown man, and obviously was a foreigner and an alien, but yet psychologically there was uh, an acceptance of life. In in I found in especially in the Buddhist countries. Uh, that this this they didn't bring out this this sense of I'm your your competitive feelings or your the sense that you had to prove your yourself you had to always prove your worth. That wasn't the issue. Like in Buddhist monastery in Thailand, it was it wasn't the idea. of I had to prove that I was uh, that that I had uh, that I you know I had to prove myself at this monastery, it was a uh, convention set up in order to reflect that very uh, sense of, of ego and self-concern selfishness and so in, uh, in, in like in India remember one time uh, seeing some uh, in Calcutta uh, a woman uh, a whole family had, had been sleeping in a bus shelter uh, homeless people out on the pavements. Uh, young young woman and her husband and several babies. And uh, early in the morning, I walked by, and, and this woman smiled at me—a nice, kind of innocent, uh, friendly smile. And uh, and it st- i had this insight at that time because my American conditioning said, "How can a woman uh, that has to sleep out on the street?" how can she smile like that? She should be miserable looking. You know, because I, I think if, if for, a, for an egotistical person like myself, sleeping on in the streets would make me feel miserable and like I was a really horrible person because I had no worth. I was a homeless person, poor, poverty-stricken. I had no rights. Uh, I was a failure. It would bring up all this kind of sense of myself being, being like... Thrown out under the streets, having to survive on, in a bus shelter for the night. But there was none of that in this woman's face. It was it was a, a friendly, bright greeting. wasn't asking for anything. And then I and then I had this insight in India. There, there there is this sense of of be, of everybody belongs, no matter what the state condition you're in, whether you're a leper, you're. You don't have any fingers on your hands and your nose is gone, or you're, you're a Maharaja or, or whatever. even if you're a, a, a Westerner, a European foreigner, you still somehow the question of, of having to prove yourself isn't basic there. It isn't an underlying attitude. so that in India, you, you, no matter even though you can be quite a sharp by by some of the poverty and and the things that you see there uh, because we don't allow that to be seen in in our own country and we try to all those kind of people you you hide away because they're shameful they're disgusting they make you feel bad <laughs> it shouldn't be that way and we we have all these attitudes where in India, the, the, it's accepted. It has its bad side. It may be they're accepting it too much, but but also it has its good side in the sense that that in, it's a truth. Everyone has a right to exist, no matter what the condition is. And a leper uh, has just as much right to to the street as I do, or the the uh, I mean, they have as much right to. To live and breathe and be a human being and survive on this planet as I do, and so uh, I could see that that the American conditioning was that 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 I actually, even though I could accept that as a as an intellectual position, emotionally, I I didn't I felt I had to prove that I was worthy. My whole life had been an attempt to try to. To, make, to prove to myself that I had a right to be here. And so this is just a reflection from my own experience of, of life as a, uh, and, and how the various experiences do reflect, bring up into consciousness these, these oftentimes underlying unstated attitudes that, that, cre- that give us a lot of suffering where we, we, we feel alien, we feel unloved, unwanted, rejected, even though in, to most people's eyes we're, we're loved, we're accepted, we're respectable, we're successful in so many ways, and yet underlying all worldly success, good health, physical beauty, and that can be a feeling that we're worthless. And I see this a lot in people here in, in, uh, in the monastery. People that are virtuous, intelligent, good-looking, everything, <laughs> can feel they're absolutely worthless. And, and when you ask why, they don't know why. But it's an, it's an underlying uh, kind of emotional attitude they've picked up. Well, in uh, terms of emptiness and selflessness, then we begin to to recognize these these attitudes as as conditions of the mind rather than than the conditions that we're grasping and we we, we no longer we begin to let them go rather than than just being caught and influenced by these and, and until we die we begin to see a way of relinquishing renouncing those useless attitudes so that we we do realize emptiness we do realize selflessness non-grasping cessation so when we contemplate emptiness for example we we also we're we're beginning to realize Eternity, or infinity, or timelessness. Now, the 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 conditioned mind is very much time bound. Everything that we're attached to, identified with, is 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 a time bound condition. The body obviously gets old. Uh, Everything's changing. The, the seasons change, the day and night, in this continuous process of change going on, uh, you know, your experiences of life, sometimes you're happy, you're sad, you're successful, you feel like a failure. The, the whole uh, conditioned realm is in this forever changing, beginning and ending experience through the senses and through the mind. But contemplate to realize and to to recognize eternity, timelessness, and then this is uh, say bringing it. When you think about it, it's not logical, isn't it? You're not. You can't. You're not trying to to make a case for eternity, but to recognize it. So, the, the mindfulness, the way of, of paying attention in the present, this awareness in the present, we begin to realize the deathless, or the timeless, infinity, unmeasurability, Because even though this is 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 with us, we don't we don't notice. We, don't, we we we're so caught up in in our views and opinions that come from attachment to thoughts, ideas, reason and logic, modern science, or or ethnic uh, cultural attitudes, or certain religious fundamental attitudes, or philosophies. Or whatever these these are these influence how we interpret our experience of life. So, say in the Western mode, say from, from speaking from my own experience, then these were very much uh, things you just dismissed: eternity and infinity were, or immortality. These words as, as were what you, you know, this happens when you die. That's it's kind of put off to when you die as they was brought up in the Christian family. So idea of eternity, infinity, uh immortality, deathlessness and that these deathlessness was never a word, and I never heard that used at all till I became a Buddhist. Immortality was one. But immortality in English means like more like a having a, a physical body being a person forever and ever. For eternity is a, is time that goes on forever and ever, and so you know you you realize that it's, that that uh, time is 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 something that uh, can be uh, contemplated in the present. But if you if you're already coming from the attitude that when I die then I'll, then I'll go to heaven, if I've been good and done all the right things and and God uh, doesn't disagree, uh, then I'll go to heaven for eternity, That it sounds you know on the level of 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 pleasant perceptions, it can sound very nice. remember when I was a little boy I was when was before television or anything we used to go to the movies on Saturday afternoons in Seattle so I I loved the movies and this was what I lived for every Saturday afternoon (laughs) put up with going to school and all the rest because Saturday afternoon was when life really became interesting you go to the movies I remember asking my mother. I said, uh, "You know, you, you you talk about heaven and all that in the afterlife." I said, "Do they have movies in heaven?" <laughs> and my mother said, "No, I don't think they do." And I, and I thought, well, "I don't want to go there then." <laughs> They're a child, isn't it that heaven is is that uh, these in uh, Seattle and these beautiful. Uh, Cinema Hall, movie theaters, uh, palatial places, you know, for a child, with gilded uh, gilted, uh, balustrades and all kinds of uh, silk hangings and whatnot, and grand grand movie theaters in the 1940s um, in a place like Seattle. and It was like you go in and, and you, you can be entertained, thrilled, see all these wonderful things. For that period of time. That's heaven. Now I think if if they show movies in heaven I, I wouldn't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> So I think the most difficult realization is uh, the present moment because this is uh, this because what influences us in the present is is usually in you know, emotional, uh, uh, physical, uh, and and it's habitual. So we we have to deal with with these habit- habits always in the present, and uh, this these habits are. Always, uh, the habits are things that, that are always taking us into the past or the future. I like to sustain uh, awareness in the present moment. It's not easy to do, unless you're really interested in something that, that's going on, where you, you can kind of, that, that holds your attention. But if there's nothing holding your attention in the present, What happens? Your mind wanders all over the place. Like with meditation, isn't it? You're you're teaching meditation to people and you're you're trying to to encourage them to stay awake and be fully present, fully awake and aware in the present moment. And that's one of the most difficult things that people have been asked to do. Because they're, they're... they're, always, uh, they, they, they're not programmed for that. It's a, it's a, in fact, it is an actual deprogramming of the habit tendencies. That's why it can be, seem so difficult at first, because you're actually, by doing that, you, you're, you're learning how to, to remove all the heavy programming that you've acquired uh, in your life. and though, and be, because we tend to look at it in terms of worldly values it doesn't look like it's worth anything I remember our people saying what a waste of time meditation is watching your belly button yogis in India they just sit and, and meditate on their navels What a, we used to laugh I remember as children we used to think that was hilarious of all the useless and stupid things to do with your life is sit around under a tree and meditate on your navel. <laughs> your breath isn't, you know, navel or breath. But if you... But when you're contemplating, when you're developing that, that state of awareness, a sustained attentiveness in the present... Then you begin to see it's it's uh, something very worthwhile developing, but in terms of worldly aims and values, it's useless and wasting your time. You could be studying uh, French or taking a night course or watching the television or playing golf, or doing. <laughs> but to sit around watching your breath or contemplating your navel. But in terms of training the mind, isn't it? because that's what we, we have in the, our societies, don't train us, don't, don't encourage that kind of mental development. And so our minds tend to just accumulate. We become creatures of habit. We, we get overburdened with ideas and thought we become obsessed with ourselves and our worth or worthlessness. And we endlessly create problems around ourselves and the people we're living with and the places we're in. Because uh, there's always something wrong, always something inadequate about myself or somebody else or the situation. And then wherever you are, in your own house, with whoever you're living with, there's always something wrong with it. Remember when we moved to Chithurst years ago in '79? You know, Chithurst House was this derelict house, and uh, and uh, the first time I'd ever really been able to see uh, uh, what a f- you know that at one time it was a really finely made house. They built in the 18 si- early 1860s, and uh, because it was in such derelict state, we we had to kind of strip a lot of it and take the plaster and dry rot and And I began to observe that this house, in the beginning, back in 1860, was had all the very best materials in it, made of stone, thick joices and beams, and beautiful joinery on the windows and doors, and everything was, uh, you know, the Victorian technology uh, was very interesting. I'd never seen anything like that. How they, you know, they how they collected rainwater and slate tanks in the attics and. A whole lot. It's fascinating to observe, and I contemplated. Here is a house built in 1860. Stone house. Stone has a sense of eternity, doesn't it? It's not like a like in Seattle. We all have wooden houses. Wooden houses don't have that that sense of lasting forever. Stone, to to me, meant that you know it was it was a hard substance that would last forever and yet by 1979 that house was ready to fall It was ready to cave in and they even observed that the stone was crumbling there were wasps and different kinds of insects that burrow into sandstone and and parts of it would just come off in chunks and and then the the only this dry rot the, the wooden structures inside under the plaster between the bricks and so forth there's this hideous thing called dry rot had crept in. It's like some awful, ugly monster. They, they, it, it can its spores even through brick and stonework. As soon as it, it senses there's some wood someplace, it can go right, send it right through these these impenetra- impenetrable uh, substances like stone and brick. It's like an invincible, evil force. Dry rot. We I had mean, this... Sense of this, even Ajahn Sajito, who the, with his artistic temperament, uh, drew a picture of the dry-wrought deva, he called it. <laughs> and it was the most ugly, ugly kind of creature. And, it, uh, and, and, the, and then in the, in the cellar, in the basement of Chittor's house, were all these huge, hideous flowers of dry-wrought fungi. Flowers and they were, they were the most ghastly-looking things, disgusting kind of thing. And that yet this, this kind of seamless, uh, seeming uh, thing that, that didn't didn't have much substance to it could actually seep through, go through stone and brick to any wooden piece underneath the plaster in that house and, and destroy it completely, destroy the wood. So then, you know, I keep thinking that these these are these you know, you build a house, you know, the people that built Chitter's house in eighteen sixty we're gonna build this fine house, elegant style, you know, high ceilings and arch doorways and all the rest. And then we'll have this beautiful house to live in. But then you read the history of Chitner's house, they didn't live in it very long, they had to sell it and went to <laughs> pretty soon it was by nineteen 19- 79, it was uh, the roof was caving in the floor was falling into the cellar and so forth and so you, you, you contemplated how you know, the, how impermanent and it, that once you do something you, you get it to its peak like this temple you know, it will be built up you know, it will be finished and then what will it do? it will decay <laughs> that's just the law of nature It'll reach its peak and the moment then you kind of it reaches its reach it's finished, you say, "This is it, no more it has to be done." Uh, and we've built it in a way that is a low maintenance. We don't like to work. No like <laughs> one spend our life taking care of a temple, low maintenance, we build up, and then you know then it'll sustain itself in that perfect state immediately it starts decaying. So I mean this is just the, the condition world is like this. It's a you have to keep always having to clean, to prop it up, to to renew, to uh refurbish, to repair. Because the 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 condition realm is, is not a sustainable state. It can't it can't uh, it doesn't have anything that lasts in it. So the, the, uh, the time-bound conditions uh, are seen as just that, and we begin to break our identity, let go of our identity with the time-bound conditions of the body, the the thoughts, the emotions, the habits of the mind. Doesn't mean we, we're in a state of denial or rejection, but you see something, you really see it and know it for what it is, and you—you—it's you, a—it's—it's it's insight, it's profound kind of insightful knowing the truth. It's not just adopting a Buddhist attitude towards the conditioned realm. We're not asking you to do that, just to—to to have form some kind of Buddhist idea about the world and and operate from that, but to—to—to to, to penetrate into the way things are for that direct kind of wisdom and knowledge and understanding of Dhamma in which you can let go of the sense of yourself and let go of the world and, and not try to, to hang on, hold on, uh, identify uh, the world and, 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 and try to sustain something that, is, that you can't sustain because in terms of this, this realization, then you can, uh, when you realize the non-grasping, the deathless, or begin to get a sense for the measureless, the infinite, the timeless, the eternal. And it's not a blank, is it a, 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 it's not annihilation. It's not a, a, a rejection of the world or the conditions of the world or the body or anything. But it is an understanding and, and seeing things as they are in context, in, in time, in place, in seeing it as it really is rather than through a filter of greed or hatred or delusion. and this is uh this is the 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 potential that we all have as human beings i mean this this is possible for us we can do this this isn't asking you I mean, this isn't just a a theory intellectual theory that that sounds great but it is Something that we we can do. We don't have. We don't need even special equipment. You don't need a, a computer. You don't need a microscope or telescope. Any electronic equipment, or uh, you don't even need to be educated. You can be illiterate <laughs> because you've got it all here. The, what you're looking at is. The way it is, your, your, the body, this body, the, the, the way your mind is, no matter how, uh, what way your mind is, no matter how uh, intelligent your thoughts or how stupid your thoughts might be, is not the issue anymore. It's, it's using wisdom rather than, than, uh, than uh, trying to figure it out intelligently with reason and logic. It's intuitive. It's an it's an opening the mind to the universe rather than trying to fit the universe into the little perceptions that you've acquired through your education. And that's that's one of the 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 kind of images of of the foolish creature, isn't it? Where you're trying to interpret the universe in terms of uh, very mediocre uh, perceptions, concepts, trying to understand everything through just a duali- dualistic logic. Because if you do that, then you end up with either uh, eternalism, where you think every uh, you know you you want to think in terms of positive, be a positive thinker. Or you're annihilationists. Those are the two extremes. Or you can be a fence sitter. I don't really know. Uh, not not bothered to think about the future in terms of 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 uh, except maybe your next holiday or what you're going to your next job or your next partner or something. But. <laughs> one can just get so mesmerized and involved with the things around one with the objects the conditions that, and, and in the modern life we we have an unlimited supply of distractions in the winter time you know, and you think here in Britain probably in the winter time uh, say a hundred years or so ago people didn't really have much to do it's too cold to go outside you're staying in, you You learned how to knit, crochet, embroider, work out crossword puzzles, do things, uh, entertain each other. People used to read to each other. Now we can, you know, we can, uh, winter time, go on holiday, got television, Uh, we've got uh, all ways of, of, of just distracting ourselves from Having to look at anything very closely, or having to work through boredom, having to having to sit still and and having to to just bear with a, an overactive mind, an obsessive emotional a obsessive emotional habits, and so forth, because we can always just drift around, go on to the next thing. So this is one reason. Why, meditation has become uh, uh, increasingly regarded, respected in in Britain. There's a much more interest now in meditation, in people willing to train themselves to sit still and to awaken and observe because they see that even the people come here on a weekend for a weekend retreat, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday Monday to sit still watch their breath and contemplate their navels they could be out having a good time and they'll sit there with their knees aching their backs aching their minds going berserk (laughs) And then, thank you at the end of it <laughs> 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 thank you, audience uh, mayoror but also there's something in in us that realizes that this is something we need to to learn how to do to to learn how to be still, how to listen to the silence how to Relax inwardly, without you know how to be aware, sustain attention in the present, without trying to, to hold our attention to something exciting or interesting. And this is, this is a, a, a different way of training and different way of using the mind than, than, say anything that has been developed so far in the West. because intuitively know this is this is what we need to do because we know in a, in a country like this where we can pretty much get what we want uh... in terms of material things and and uh... we can go to you know televisions and we can we can have uh, you know movies twenty four hours a day and they have these cable channels and so forth you know, if if I was still seven or eight years old. <laughs> but, you outgrow grow that. You know, that heaven is, heaven, you know, where you get tired of, of too many movies. Too much excitement is boring. Uh, you have to you have to keep boosting it up with drugs now, these ecstasy and all these other things, the ways of attempting to to create, you know, is just the, the most exciting thing you can ever experience. <laughs> and yet, what does it do? You know, it gets you into a high state but then you drop, isn't it? I hear people that, that do that and they they drop into a depressed state very quickly. It, it's like the higher you go, the the lower you fall. So, in terms of, of meditation, what you're you're really learning to find a balanced, sustainable state in the present that isn't dependent on things being interesting or pleasant or or beautiful, pleasing to you, but a, 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 you begin to awaken to the the deathless reality. in which you're you're no longer, you can break your identity, your attachment to the death-bound conditions of your body and conditions of your mind. So that's what liberation is. Ultimate freedom, nibbana. Oftentimes they say, the highest happiness is nibbana. And then we think, oh, nibbana is probably higher than ecstasy. But to realize Nibana means that you have to let go of ecstasy <laughs> or heroin or any of those. <laughs> and even let go of just boredom and restlessness and, and all the things that come up in, in your, when you're sitting in a meditation hall and <clears> then <throat> things will come up into consciousness like anger and resentment and a lot of ugly, nasty emotions will suddenly kind of rise up into consciousness in a meditation. But you're learning rather than to fight and resist. You're learning how to relinquish, let go of those conditions. So it's, it's as I said before, it's a deprogramming of the mind. You're learning to free your mind, liberate your mind from the negative habits you've acquired. The the emotional patterns that, that, are, that one gets uh, stuck with in life more and more through meditating the right way and developing the right attitude then these, then these are liberated from you through conscious awareness of them and rather than judging them as personal problems you're looking at them in terms of conditions ceasing you're letting them go, so at first that's why some of you you find your beginning meditation somewhat uh or or uh, even after several years sometimes nothing really uh the ne- the real uh repressed negativity doesn't arise with some people till several years later, and then it all kind of explodes up and they, they think oh. God. I used to have such blissful states now as soon as I sit down well, my mind goes crazy <laughs> that's fine it's beginning to you know you way of, of seeing it of relating to that craziness or that ugliness in a way that uh, you're liberating your mind rather than conditioning it uh, with fear or resentment resistance so that this is where the, the, the emptiness, non-attachment, we realize this. And, and we let go of our thinking mind, our logical mind. It doesn't mean we, we deny it or reject it, but we're no longer dependent on the extremes of the conditioned realm. Our identity has been broken. We're freed from the bondage to desire and to fear. So I offer this as a reflection for you this Sunday afternoon. We can have a break. Uh, obviously, the survey, the survey, they're setting up a uh, tea for us. Uh, you're invited to have tea. And then in 20 minutes or so, uh, of those who are interested, we can reassemble. And, and I will uh, open up the remaining time for questions.